Nice to see you today. I want to welcome those of you joining us from an off-site campus or on the internet or maybe a podcast. I was uh, just in the room that we affectionately call the bullpen, which is kind of where I hang out for a few minutes before uh, every service. And uh, we have a live feed of the worship of uh, about nine of the campuses. So it's kind of fun watching you guys worship together especially those of you in North Charleston. You guys got it going on. That was a lot of fun. Well, uh, glad to see you guys today. Glad that you are here. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever had a problem? Let's just stop there. How many of you have ever had a problem? Yeah. All right, good. We're all in. We're all in. How many of you have ever had a problem and it was urgent And because of the urgency, you came up with a solution and ends up the solution to your problem was worse than the problem itself. Any testimonies there? Okay. A few of them. All right. So some of you, that's why you got married real quick, right? No, no, no. I didn't say that. I am so sorry. All right. Debbie and I were teenagers. We were in love. That's my wife. We were in love. We weren't married. Uh, both lived in Denver, and my parents were getting ready to move. And so we were cleaning up the house. We're going to sell the house. We're, we've got showings of the house, and we painted the walls, all that kind of stuff. So Debbie and I were having a date, and our date was babysitting my little brother, Chris. And mom and dad were at the church. He's a pastor, and they were at the church doing something. I don't know what they were doing. So anyway... Uh, we're watching TV. Chris goes in the other room and he spills a can of paint on the carpet. New house, or actually house we're getting ready to sell. I don't know what to do. We have a crisis right now. So I call my dad. Get dad on the phone. Now, I don't know what your dad's like. My dad tends to overreact at times. Anybody have a dad kind of like that? So I explained calmly the situation. And I said, Dad, what should we do? To which dad replied, you might as well rip it up and burn it. <laughs> Boom. Slam the phone down. So I'm left to my own devices. I've got to fix this. This is urgent. Dad will come home. I'm in trouble. What do I do? I have no idea. I had no idea what paint's made out of. I had no idea how you clean up paint off of a carpet. I did know that my mother is a clean freak, okay? She had one of these cleaning demons. Anybody nobody, any, 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 anybody like that? You know, you got to clean everything. And so mom always, when she cleaned, she always used this right here, pine salt. Pine salt will do anything. So I ran to the cabinet and got a bottle of pine salt about like this. I thought, lots of paint, lots of pine salt. We dumped the whole thing onto the paint. About that time, my father came in and uh, saw what was going on in uh, I won't tell you what he did. But anyway, what, 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 what ended up is they dumped a bunch of water on the paint because paint is what? Water-soluble. So, good news. 
we got all of the paint out of the carpet. Not as good a news is that the pine saw faded the color out of the carpet. Okay? So, the solution was worse than the problem. Top that story, will you? Well... We're going to study Acts chapter 6. In fact, we're kind of concluding a mini-series, just kind of a little six-week series on the first six chapters of, of Acts. And we're going to move on <clears throat> to another mini-series, Acts 7 through 11. We'll tell you about that later. And in this series, <clears throat> been kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, it's been kind of fun because it's the beginning of the church. It starts with one. It started with Jesus who died for our sin who rose again, proving that he was God. And then he uh, left to be uh, ever our intercessor with the Father, and he left the Holy Spirit uh, with the church. And that's the beginning of the church. And we studied that in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. And said, be filled with the Holy Spirit. We've talked a little bit about that. And then the church encounters some issues, some problems, both from outside and from inside. And in this uh, chapter this week, in Acts chapter 6, they uh, hit another potential problem in this brand new church and almost, almost choose a solution that could have been worse than the problem, which would have sidetracked the church and we might not have what we have here today. And so uh, I want to study it. Here's what I want to do. As we study it, I want you to think about in your life right now, maybe a, a challenge might be a personal challenge, might be a business, might be on a team that you play on or a team that you lead. Um, it could be in a ministry area. It might be something that keeps you awake at night right now, okay? It's a challenge. It's a problem. How do you handle that? And what if you chose the wrong solution that ultimately became worse than the problem? How can you avoid that? Well, I want to apply that toward the end of the message. I want to study how the New Testament church handled it. If you have a Bible, read along with us. Uh, if not, there is in your bulletin, there are, are uh, some notes there. And let's start at Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. It says this, As the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. Huh. This is the New Testament church. This is full of the Holy Spirit. And yet there are problems. Here's the principle. When the church grows, it's not always pretty. When the church grows, it's not always pretty. In fact, this New Testament church, in this chapter we studied last week, you have Ananias and Sapphira who uh, died during the offering because of wrong motives. And they're members of the church. In Acts chapter 8 that we'll study in a couple of weeks, there's this magician and kind of a sleight-of-hand artist, and he gets saved and he joins the church and he's baptized. It says specifically he's baptized into the church. He's a member of the church. And he comes to some of the leaders of the church and he tries to buy the ability to convey the Holy Spirit uh, because he wants to make profit on that. This is a guy in the church in the church. People come with their agendas from time to time. I mean, I've been around a long time. We've, we've, had, we've had some issues here. I, I remember uh, when we were, I think we were building this building right here, th- this part of it. And, you know, people were collecting together their money. Little kids were putting, you know, coins in little piggy banks to help. And people were making sacrifices and 
committing. And, and a guy called me and he said, I want to talk to you about a commitment that I'm going to make. And I said, okay. So he comes in and we sit down and we talk. And he said, I want to make a significant um, commitment to the building fund. I thought, well, that's great. I mean, everybody, its significance is different for everybody, but that's good. But I began to sense that there was more than what met the surface here, that this guy actually kind of wanted to use his gift to the building fund to kind of buy influence, to be able to influence some things. And I'm just thinking that, and it becomes pretty obvious to me. And finally, the guy writes a check, six figures. Say six figures together. Six figures. Six figures will sometimes take your breath away. It's like, <gasps> wow. And so he writes it and he slides a six-figure check across my desk. But I can almost supernaturally see the strings attached coming out from the check. And, and I don't know what to do. And, and, and I'm thinking, we need the money. That's great. It was a gut check and I took the check and I slid it slowly back across the table, hoping that I was doing the right thing. You know what I mean? And I said, you know what? Your money doesn't buy you any more here than a single mother who, you know, saved up and gave $10, $20, $50 to the building fund. That's not how we play here. It was messy. It was messy. Oh, wait, one time, another time during a Christmas Eve service, we were having Christmas Eve at the Masonic Temple. Can you say mistake? Let's say mistake together. Mistake. <laughs> Okay, so we're having Christmas Eve at the Masonic Temple. It's raining like crazy. People are coming in, you know, and it's hundreds and hundreds of people. Biggest crowd we've ever had to that point. And I'm standing at the door watching people come in, and this lady comes in with this. She's got a bag, and in the bag she's got a tambourine. And uh, one of the ushers bring her over to me, and and, uh, she said, I would like to play my tambourine uh, with the band tonight at the Christmas Eve services. I said, well, that's good. Have you practiced with the band? A lot of times we practice before we, you know, do that type of thing. And she said, no, I don't need to. I said, really? She said, no. She said, I have a gift to play. I said, well, we appreciate your gift, but we would like your gift to practice with all the other gifts in order to do this. And she said, you don't understand. She said, God told me that I was going to play tonight. Have you know it's real hard to argue with God? But I did. And uh, I said, well, you know what? God didn't tell me. And so (laughs) we're not doing that. And she got upset. She had an agenda. We've had all kinds of fun things. In the 20 years I've been here, we've had at least two that I've witnessed really good fistfights in the parking lot. Really good. In fact, on one of them, a guy was harassing his, like, ex-wife. And she sucker punched him. Bloody nose. It was awesome. It was really... I'm not into violence usually, but he needed it. But anyway, so... (laughs) It's been crazy. Staying faithful to the vision as a leader sometimes has felt like pushing a wheelbarrow full of frogs. Can you get a mental on that one? You know, about the time you got frogs going out? I didn't think it was that good either. So we won't use it in the next service. In a growing church... You never reach the point of neat and pretty. There are always issues, always problems. John Piper said it this way, a true movement of the Holy Spirit in this fallen world will always sweep some debris into the church. When the church grows, it's not pretty. Not always. There were rumblings of discontent. Let's see what they were about. Those who spoke Greek complained against those who spoke Hebrew, praying or saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. Let's just kind of pause on that, just kind of a little background on it. 
widows and orphans, had a very special place in God's heart. Uh, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, he says that he is a father to the fatherless and he's a defender of the widows. In this patriarchal culture, uh, if you were widowed, you're, you're the poor of the poor because women couldn't make a living and um, depended on her husband. And if her husband died, uh, then she needed to depend on her family. And if her family didn't take care of her, sometimes the government had some things. But the, the church in the synagogue kind of became uh, the, the, the safety net for widows who fell through the cracks. And there was a regular distribution of qualified widows. You can read in uh, 1 Timothy about who's qualified, who's not, and all this kind of stuff. But they, they had a, a kind of a social justice within the church reaching out to the poor and the widows. And in this case, the Greek widows, uh, some of their, their Greek friends who had come to know Jesus, uh, felt like that they were being discriminated against. Um, they didn't, that, that wasn't their home. They didn't have family there and yet they were living there. They didn't understand the language. Maybe they didn't, you know, uh, just a lot of things. It's a, it's a multicultural church. And so there are just a lot of issues, a lot of stuff going on. And so there were rumblings about what was happening and it's threatening the unity of this brand new church. Now, as I read this, I saw two threats to the church. The first one was disorganization disorganization, the success of the gospel. As they preach the gospel, hundreds and thousands even at a time are being added. So the success of the gospel leads to an overload for the apostles in their administrative skills. Now that happened fairly early on for us here at Seacoast. We outgrew my administrative capacities on day two. Okay, day two of the church. I do not have very many administrative capacities. Uh, Church... uh, you know, we told the story before. The, the first week we had a lot more people than we thought were, were going to be here. And then it kind of, kind of, you know, kind of leveled out after that. And I, I, I called one of my friends from Denver who was in ministry after the first week. And I said, Terry, you got to come help me. And so Terry moved his family out here to help. And here was the problem is Terry was just like me. Hey, how do you know you like hanging out with people like you? I thought, well, we need more people like me, you know, to kind of help with this thing. And he didn't have any administrative gifts either. Both of us were mess makers, not detail people. Anybody else normal like that in here? Okay. All right. The only kind of detail person that we had around us was my wife. And, um, and so real quickly, the messes we made, which we called vision, (laughs) overloaded our capacity and her capacity to kind of handle them. And it was putting a strain on the church and on my marriage. And fortunately in the church, one of the guys, Glenn Wood, was a volunteer at that point. He said, you know, I like, you know, structure. I like all of that. You think I might, maybe could help? And we said, well, absolutely came and helped. Now he's on staff and helped through the administrative process because we had a disorganization problem. Any growing church or any growing organization will face disorganization threats. And somebody says, well, just how organized should a church be? Some people believe the church shouldn't have formal organization at all. It shouldn't own property, shouldn't have staff members, ought to just kind of be a home church kind of a thing with real small and, and no organization. And we love home churches. We've got several of them that uh, follow, kind of track with us every week in, you know, just, just like you're doing right, right now. But some people in that movement would say that's the only valid model of a church. When the church gets overly organized, it programs the Holy Spirit out. And there can be some truth to that. I mean, if you look at the other end of the scale, there are some churches that are so businesslike 
They look like a well-oiled business. They got a complex organizational structure. They got boards, committees, subcommittees. You know, if God wants to speak in the church, he's got to get on the agenda like two weeks in advance or else we don't listen, you know, to whatever the Holy Spirit's saying. Well, both extremes are wrong. If you look at the Old Testament, God's highly organized and you see all the systems that are involved in taking care of the people. When you have large groups of people, you've got to have systems. But at the same time, God is also highly fluid. Now, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the wind, that He goes where He wants. And we've all been just surprised at times with how when we listen to God, that He speaks in a variety of ways. The size of the church determines the need for organization. And the Acts church is huge and they need more organization and it's a threat to the church. But the the bigger threat is not disorganization, it's distraction. And here it is. Here's where they could have chosen the wrong solution to the problem. The apostles are tempted to solve the problem in the wrong way, causing no doubt a far bigger problem that would have impacted us uh, today. Uh, That's of being distracted. Here it is. Verse 2. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. Why? Because they got a problem with the, with the widows and the Greek widows and there's rumbling. We apostles should, circle the word should, should. We apostles should spend our time preaching and teaching the Word of God, not administering a food program, they said. Food program's important, but they said, here's what we should be doing. I think, if you read between the lines, I think they were responding to somebody else's should. Think about it like this. What do you think the rumblings were? I can just hear the rumblings. You know, if the apostles would get out from behind the desk, you know, if they'd spend more time hanging out at the soup kitchen, they'd understand the problems. That's what they should be doing. These guys are working full-time. I mean, how much time does it take to study and pray and give that little message that they do at the synagogue or at the meetings? I mean, they, they should be doing someone else, something else. How do you know should-bes will kill you? Should-bes will kill you. Have you ever had somebody fired up about an issue they are passionate about and they think you should be equally passionate. You should be involved. I get that all the time. You should be more, you know, interested in the Middle East or you should be more involved in politics or you should care more about abortion or you should care more about the poor. You should care more about, you just fill in the blank. You should be because somebody's fired up about it. And that's good. We need to be fired up. But we need to understand that the Holy Spirit gives us passions and you need to find people that have the same passion. But don't put your shoulds on somebody else. I won't should on you. You don't should on me. Does that make sense? And so, and so the, the apostles... I, I did not say that, Okay. The apostles, the apostles have some guys going, you should be doing this. And they say, no, 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 time out. That's not who God created us to be. 
It's a good thing. We all don't do the same thing. That's not the way to fix it. And they could have made the problem worse by caving into pressure, changing their priorities to fit the current crisis. The church would have suffered. Doctrinal error would have come in. And it may not even have come uh, as far as it has today. And our lives maybe would not have been changed. Instead, they say, we should be, that's God should be, spending our time preaching, teaching, and not administering the food program. So, there's a threat of disorganization, distraction. How did they solve it? Verse 3. They released the church to solve the problem. Uh, Now look around among yourselves, brothers, and select seven men who are well-respected and full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will put them in charge of this business. And then we can spend our time in prayer and teaching and preaching of the Word. They said... We can fix it, but we don't have to do it. Look around you. Find some guys who are passionate, who are close to the issue, who are, who are men of good character and full of the Holy Spirit and who have wisdom, have wisdom. And then we can, we can fix this together. So they released the church, verse 5. This idea pleased the whole group, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Philip, you're going to hear about Stephen and Philip in other role as we go on through Acts. And then they name five other guys that I cannot for the life of me pronounce their name, but they're good guys, great guys, and they're full of good character, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. How many of you know you need all three of those? All three of those, because how many of you know people who are full of character and full of the Holy Spirit, and they're just weird. Okay, anybody know anybody like this? So you've got to have wisdom, too. got to have all of that, all of it together. They're men who are ready. Verse 6. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. It's kind of like a conveying, you're going to do this part. The, the, we have this mission together. Our role isn't more important than your role. All the roles are important, but we don't need to be doing all the roles individually. This is what you're gifted. You're, you're, this is what you're called to. We're going to lay hands on you, and we're going to do this all together. And God's message was preached in ever-widening circles. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. It's interesting. They solved the problem in the right way. And as a result... It didn't stop the gospel. It didn't distract them. They didn't continue to be disorganized. They were more organized. They were able to preach the gospel. And it says that they continued to grow and they even reached some hard cases, the Jewish priests. Okay, so that's the story. Now, I want to make application to us. As I was reading that, I thought, what are the principles? Some of us have challenges right now. We have challenges in our ministry. There's challenges in the church. There's challenges on teams that we're a part of. There's challenges. How do we make the right choice, not the wrong choice? The choice that not makes the problem worse, but makes the problem solved. What do you do? Let me give you four leadership principles, and then I'll ask you to apply it to your life. Growing through a crisis. Number one, see every crisis as an opportunity to get better. See every crisis as an opportunity to get better. Verse one, there were rumblings of discontent. What do you do when you hear rumblings of discontent? How do you really enjoy that? Not doing the rumbling, but when somebody's rumbling against you. you. I mean, you go, I live for those days that people rumble and complain. Anybody here? Ushers, would you take them away? 
We don't like that, do we? Because it threatens peace. It threatens unity. What do you do when something's not working or maybe people are complaining, customers are leaving, whatever it happens to be? There are different ways people react. Some people do nothing. They just ignore it and hope it'll go away. Or sometimes they're frozen by fear. This is the end, worst case scenario. And they, they do nothing. Other people shoot the messenger. Do you know anybody like that? You don't want to bring bad news to the boss because the boss will shoot you. You know, there's a culture and a climate that says the beatings will continue until the morale increases. You know, that type of a thing. Some people are like that. Some people rush to a knee-jerk reaction. They make things worse. Other people quit. I didn't sign up for this. This It's too stressful for me. Problem comes, they quit. The apostles didn't do any of those. In fact... There was a sense that the problem of the widows was to some extent a grace of God, a gift of God, because it highlighted the need for greater organization for the church. And if the church was going to grow, was going to accomplish the mission that it needed, it was going to have to go to a whole other level in organization. And the problem with the widows just highlighted that. And so it's like the disciples are saying, this is a legitimate issue. Let's make this, or let's use this to make our care for widows better. When, you, when you're faced with a problem, usually it's an opportunity to grow and to get better. I met with a businessman that, that's a friend of mine recently, a few months ago, and we're having lunch and we're going to talk about something else. And so I just asked him, I said, how's business? And I could tell by the look on his face that I had asked the wrong question. This is not going to help lunch or dinner or whatever it happened to be at all. I said, I'm, I'm sorry, we don't have to talk about that. He said, no, 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 no we should. He said, business is terrible. He said, it's just falling off the table right now. And I said, well, it's the economy. He said, well, it's more than that. It's more than that. It's just like there's a morale is bad. He said, our, our very best person quit. He said, I don't know what, I don't know what I'm going to do. So we talked about it for a few minutes. And I, I kind of felt like Peter and John when they were going out from the temple and you know, a guy said, could I have some silver and gold? And they said, well, we don't have any money, but what we have, we'll give you. And I was like, I don't have business advice, but what I have, I'll give you. Let's just pray. And so we prayed about it. And uh, so we met a few weeks later. And uh, I said, well, how, how is that problem? And uh, he said, you know what? He said, it's the best thing that ever happened to us. He said, if we'd have continued like we were, I think we would be closed by now. But he said, it forced me to take a look at how we were operating. And we had people in the wrong place. And I brought in a manager who knows how to manage, who's not just like me. And he was a mess maker too, visionary. And... He said, my top performer came back. This person said, I like the people here. I just couldn't live with the, with the chaos. And he said, things are good. So whether it's in the church or our families or business or wherever it happens to be, every crisis is an opportunity to get better. And the quicker you see it that way, the sooner that you can move ahead toward a solution. Second lesson I learned in here, uh, a way to react during a crisis is spend your time doing what you're good at and you're called to. Spend your time doing what you're good at and you're called to. They said, we should spend our time preaching and teaching, not administering a food program. I met a, a pastor recently for lunch. I do that quite a bit. I love it. Guys will call and say, can, can I have a few minutes? And I'll say, if you'll buy my lunch, you can have an hour. <laughs> because that's my spiritual gift. <laughs> Eating. If you have the gift of paying for lunch or cooking, we can get along. We can do our thing. 
And so I sat down and he's sharing. His, I said, what's your vision? He's sharing his vision. I got excited. I don't get excited very much these days about things that I hear. I got totally excited. I thought, this is awesome. I thought, I, I should have thought of this. This is, this is incredible. And then, then I began to think, I should be doing this. I, I, I should, I should, I should. I wasn't taking somebody else's should. I was laying my own should on myself. It was terrible. I'm feeling about this big. And then I began to think, no, 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 no. God created this guy. God created me. God created him with personality, gifts, talents, passions that he has. And he's just leaning into them. He's just leaning into who God created him to be. If I lean into who God created him to be, it won't work for me. Because God doesn't want me to be like him. God wants me to be like me. In fact, God wants me to be the best me that I can be by being not my effort, but by being filled with his Holy Spirit. Just by following him and listening to him and responding to him. Who's God created you to be? Take some time figuring that out. What are you good at? What brings a sense of fulfillment? What do other people say? That, that God seems to really just use you when you do that. And when, it, when what you do fits who you are, everyone wins. And so don't, when a crisis comes, don't just default into, I've got to do everything. I've got to be the one that fixes it. And don't let others guilt you into taking on a role that's not the best solution. Because if you spread yourself too thin, you'll end up not getting anything done. The solution may end up being worse than the problem. Okay? Third thing that I learned is this. Choose the right people to tackle the problem. That's so big in this passage. He says what? He says, says select seven men. It, it's a patriarchal society. You know, it's men, men, men. Today we would say select seven men and women, you know, because God <laughs> uses us all. But he says select seven men who are of good reputation, they're full of the Holy Spirit, and they're full of wisdom. Here's a lesson I'm learning. What is a burden to me is probably a blessing to someone else. What is a burden to me? When I, when I feel like I'm overloaded, I just can't take on one more thing, and here's another responsibility. Well, you know what? What is a burden to me that may very well be a blessing to someone else. See, what would have overburdened the the apostles? Administering a food program, which is necessary and it's good, but we can't do it. We don't have the gifts and we don't have the time. And what would have been a burden to them? Listen, there are seven guys, new guys waiting in the wings. But if you'll just let me do it, I can feel like I'm a part of the action. And oh, hey, by the way, administering stuff, I get charged doing that. Let, let, let me be a part of it. Let me, let me do it. There's probably somebody in your arena of influence right now that would be honored to tackle the problem that's stressing you out. In fact, moms, it may be that the kids could do more than what you're giving them credit for. Or, or at work. Um... There are probably people that work for you that could do more than what you're giving them credit for. And it would be a blessing. They would say, you know, I, I want to be a part. I could be a part. It would give me a chance to contribute. Choose the right people. Just a couple of thoughts about who the right people are. 
first thought is, is the right people were already in the house. In this situation, the, the right people were in the house. The apostles had not been looking for them or, or maybe it just because the situation wasn't that hot you know, or that, that passionate before this, this point, nobody ever thought about it. But right there in the house, they didn't have to look very far. There are men and women who could deal with this. People with a passion. Um, they share the vision of the house. Oftentimes we, we look outside of the house. We, well, there's nobody that could do this. I, I was meeting, I had the privilege recently of meeting with Brian Houston, who is the pastor of Hillsong Church. Some of you have heard of Hillsong, great church in Australia. Their worship music, you probably have heard we sing a lot of their stuff here. And I asked Brian, I said, Brian, I mean, how, how do you, you know, how'd you find these people and how do you motivate them and all this kind of stuff? And Brian said, you know what? You wouldn't have recognized them if you saw them when we found them. In fact, you wouldn't have wanted them because they weren't who they are now. They were in our house. They shared our vision. We were able to look at them through God's eyes and see how God saw them. And he said, that is something you've got to develop is seeing people, not for who they are, but who they can be through Christ in the house. Second thing I know is that they were probably somewhat passionate about the problem because the seven names, remember the ones I couldn't pronounce, the last five? Well, you throw Stephen and Philip in with that. Those are all Greek names. All Greek names. So all these guys are Greek guys probably uh, who are kind of close to the, they're kind of passionate about the situation. And the third thing I, I thought about the right people is they weren't necessarily experts in the problem that needed solved. It's not like the d- disciples said, we got to, you know, we got to administrate a food program for widows. Uh, send us your resumes. Those of you who have experience in uh, administrating food programs for widows, you'll be at the top of the list. Okay. I mean, there's wisdom in doing that, but that's not what they did. Here's what they did. They said, give us people who are full of character because character trumps talent every time. Well-respected. Character trumps talent. How many times have you made a wrong decision because you went after talent rather than character? If you're in the hiring practice, you've done that. Well, character trumps talent because talent fades, but character lasts. And being spirit-filled trumps experience. So have them be full of the Holy Spirit. Experience is helpful unless experience keeps you from trying something. People who are full of the Holy Spirit believe that nothing is impossible. Someone filled with the Holy Spirit has access to supernatural power every day of their life. Someone filled with the Holy Spirit gets along with people. You say, well, I know people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and they don't get along with people. They weren't filled with the Holy Spirit. Because if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, here's the evidence. There's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Okay? So when somebody is full of the Holy Spirit, all the fruits of the Holy Spirit are in operation. Now, you might be full one day and kind of not full the next day. You leak. Remember that? You need to get before God and just say every day, help me to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Wisdom trumps resume. What, what you learn and have done is not necessarily as important as the wisdom to respond properly to changing circumstances. All three are important. You can't just have two. So when faced with a problem or crisis, see it as an opportunity to get better. Spend your energy on what you do best. Enlist the right people to help you. Here's the fourth thing the disciples did. Trust the team to come up with the solution. Trust the team. Look at, the, look at what they said. We will put them in charge. We will put them in charge. Let's say that together. We will put them in charge. What does that convey? Trust. 
trust. What do you do when you don't trust somebody? You micromanage them, right? You tell them exactly how you want it done. You check on them every five minutes. What does that do? That devalues them. Let me tell you two things it would have done in the church. If they would have micromanaged what was going on rather than trusting the people that they had and let them do it, it would have taken the apostles away from what was important for them and ultimately what was important for the church because they would have, instead of been doing that, they would have been micromanaging this over here. And the second thing it would have done, it would have, it would have discouraged the people, the seven guys that stepped up. And they would not have been able to come up with a solution. Because sometimes we feel like when we're delegating something, whether that's as a parent or whether that's as a, you know, a ministry leader or a work person or whatever it happens to be, we feel like, hey, we know the right way. We know the, ours is the only way. And guess what? There are smart people out there that might have a better solution to whatever the problem is. They said, we will let you do the work. We will put them in charge comes down to trust. Either you trust them or you don't. If you Trust the people you have or get people you can trust. But let them go. Let them do it. And the results? Verse 7, God's message was preached in ever-widening circles. And the number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem. And many of the Jewish priests were converted also. So that's the message. Uh, you may be facing a challenge right now, a problem right now. Maybe in ministry, like I said, family, team, personally, whatever it is. Let's learn from God's Word. See every challenge and every opportunity as an opportunity to grow. Um, be willing to be clear about who God has called you to be. Pick the right people and then release them to solve the problem. Let's pray. Father, I thank You today for Your Word. I thank You for the practicality of just tracking with You and learning from You and seeing how all through Scripture, the people are normal. They're real. They're just like us. Same problems, same issues. Lord, most of all, I thank You for caring enough about us to love us to send Jesus Christ to die for us with all of our issues. And then not just to leave us there, but to empower us by the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that in the next few moments that we would be more Spirit-empowered. Would be, we would be honest about our issues and where we are. And Lord, that you would transform us by the work of the Spirit into the people that you desire for us to be. In your name we pray. Amen.